So as we jump in this morning to the last part here of Proverbs chapter 1, we're going to finish up this chapter and we'll move into chapter 2 next Sunday. We're talking about wisdom for life, which is really what Proverbs is all about. Some people have this impression of the of the Word of God that it's all about rules and regulations and, and, and God keeping us under His thumb so that we won't have any fun or any enjoyment in life. And but the reality is that the Proverbs, uh, the wisdom literature of God, is, is meant to teach us how to live a life full of joy, uh, full of contentment, full of peace. It's really teaching us how to live the very best life. And who knows better how to live the best life than God who gave us life, who is the author and the perfecter of life and knows how life is best to be lived. So on this Father's Day, I thought I'd share with you uh, another story about some of my interactions with uh, my own father. Each of these chapters coming up starts with, My son, listen to my instruction. And I can remember one time as a middle school student uh, when I didn't listen to my dad's in- instruction as well as I should have. Uh, when, we, when I was going into the seventh grade, we moved from our, our house in the uh, neighborhood where I had grown up. We moved out to the country. We bought five acres and and built a house, or mom and dad built a house, I didn't do anything, um, but they, uh, they did all this work to, to create a new place for us, just down the road from my grandfather, where there uh, were, was wonderful times of waiting for us uh, there, there in the country, and one of the things that happened when we moved from uh, our little half-acre lot in the city out to our five-acre lot in the country is we got a new lawnmower. Now, the reason that was such a big thing for me is we went from this little red half-rusted-out push mower that I had grown to despise as I mowed that little half-acre lot in town. We moved out, and we got a shiny, new, blue Ford riding lawnmower. And that was like the dream vehicle for a middle school boy for me at that time. I so wanted to make the jump from being the push mower guy, and it was not self-propelled, let me tell you. The self-propelled was you propelled it yourself. And so it was not that. It was, it was push it, and then I wanted to make the move, though, from the push mower guy up to the riding lawnmower. And I begged Dad for months to teach me how to operate the riding lawnmower. And so finally he relented. He relented and said, okay, boy, here, I'm going to give you some lessons in how to operate this, and I'm going to give you a shot at this, but if you mess up, you're back to the push mower. And so, okay, Dad, I got this. Let's show me what I got to do. So lesson number one, to start the riding lawnmower, it's a two-step process. You pull out the choke, and you turn the key. Pretty simple, right? And, and, and since it was new, it worked. Now, uh, up to this, this point in life, this is many years later, he still has that old thing. It doesn't quite start as well as it did then. But in those days, pull out the choke, turn the key, starts right up, and, and off you go. To stop, though, and he said this is the most important part of the puzzle. Starting it's one thing, but getting it to stop is even more important. To stop it, you've got to push in the clutch, which was this pedal on the left-hand side, And then right here at your hip, there was a little ball that you pulled up on. That was the brake. So you push in in the clutch, pull up the brake. So it's pull out the choke, turn the key to start, push in the clutch, pull up the brake to stop. Simple, right? 
And so for the first time, I went out and, and mowed the yard, and man, it was glorious. I felt like I was flying all of four miles an hour, man, just moving along on this thing and just enjoying myself so much. And I mowed the yard every opportunity that I had from then through the end of the summer. But there was one day in particular toward the end of that summer where I had a friend that had invited me over to his house. Uh, I wasn't the social butterfly, so that was, this was a rarity for me. And so I had a friend that invited me to come to his house, but my mom said, you can't go until you get the yard mowed. So there was something greater in that moment, something that I wanted more than mowing the yard, which was to go to my buddy's house. And so, man, I am going all of six miles an hour getting this thing done. I mean, I am going as quick as this lawnmower will go. I am cutting the grass quickly, and I'm flying around through there as fast as that thing will carry me until I get done, and I come right back up to the house, and somebody, and I, yet to know, I have yet to know to this day who it was, somebody, either my mom or my sister, had closed the garage door. They knew that I was mowing, and for some reason, they closed the garage door, and which for an impatient middle schooler meant, now I've got to get off this mower, I've got to go inside the house and open the garage door because it was one of those electric kind i got to go inside the house and open the garage door and then i got to come back out and start this mower and then drive it in the garage this is going to take me all of an extra 30 seconds i don't have time for this and so what did i decide to do well let's just leave the mower running so all dad had taught me push in the clutch pull up the brake and you're all good so I pull up to the garage door about as close as I could get because I didn't want to waste any time whatsoever. And I pushed in that clutch and I thought I pulled up that brake. I pulled it up about halfway. And then I went to leap off the mower. And when I did, I realized real quickly that to engage the brake requires you to actually pull it up all the way. And so I got to explain to my dad later that evening why there was a blue dent in the garage door. And there was a blue dent in the garage door because I got ahead of myself because I did not follow the instructions that my father had given me. And I had done it many times. I had done it correctly so many times. But in that moment of hurriedness, I got ahead of myself and I did not practice something that the Bible refers to as diligence. That's what we're going to talk about some today and, and even more in the weeks ahead in Proverbs. Today's message is called Diligence and Delight. Now there was huge delight for me in operating that blue Ford riding lawnmower until the day when I was no longer diligent, that means faithful, diligent, to do it in the way that my father had instructed me. That's when delight turned to disaster and a dent in the garage door that to this day is still there. I think my dad never replaced it because he wanted to have that constant reminder for me that that had happened. It was a constant living reminder of the day when I forgot to pull out the brake all the way. The Reverend Henry Martin, who was a missionary to India back in the early 1800s, it's, a, it's an amazing story uh, of this young man that God called to the mission field in India. Out of his, he was a, he was the top of his class at Cambridge University, which was like the Harvard of its day. He was he was the top of his class in mathematics, and the Lord called him to serve as a missionary in India. 
as, as he was preparing for ministry, there was one particular day in his journals. He has, we have his journals still in print today. There was one particular day when uh, Henry Martin didn't feel exceptionally uh, like serving the Lord. He just wasn't into it. You ever have those days when you just don't feel like doing what you know you ought to do? You, you don't feel a fervency. Maybe even came in this morning, you didn't really feel like worshiping the Lord, um, but you came anyway. And you ever have one of those days when it's just grin and bear it or, or gutted out? Well, Henry Martin was having one of those days, and he decided to open the Word of God and just to begin to study and to pray and ask God to change his heart. And this was his response to that experience. He said, Now this is astonishing to me, that repeated daily invariable experience assures me of the connection God has made between diligence and delight, between holiness and happiness. And yet, I am so neglectful of what I know to be the means. What's he saying? What's he, what he's saying is this, I know what my Father has given me. I know the instructions that He has given me are ultimately meant for my delight and my happiness. And yet I so often neglect the very source of my delight and my happiness. Just like that day on which I neglected to pull the brake up all the way as I had been instructed to do. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, and he said, it's so strange, there's this thing in me, I know the good that I want to do, but that's not what I find myself doing. I find myself doing the very opposite. I find myself doing the evil thing that I don't want to do. What is the deal with this sin nature that resides within me? And that's what we're going to see put on display here in Proverbs chapter 1, the last part of this chapter. The author Solomon here uses a literary device that's known as personification. If you remember English class back in those days, you remember personification is a literary device whereby an abstract concept is talked about with human characteristics in order uh, to bring, make it come alive and to teach. So personification, an abstract concept, is given human characteristics. And that's what Solomon is doing here. He describes wisdom like a beautiful woman. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And so here he describes wisdom like a bold street preacher. She is out there and she is calling out to anybody that will listen, come and hear my wisdom. Come, let me show you the right way. Let me give you instruction from the Lord. She is out there on the streets among the people. This is the very opposite of the, picture, of the way that wisdom is often pictured in our culture. We often think of a very uh, Middle Eastern type view of, of wisdom, which is wisdom is a guru. 
Okay, you all, you've seen this picture before. Wisdom is this, this guru who lives up in the mountains somewhere and he, and he resides in a cave. And in order to get to him, you've got to take a long journey and you've got you to work hard to find your way toward wisdom. And if you're lucky enough, if you're able enough, if you're smart enough, if you get to him, then he will impart his wisdom to you. But it's all about you going after the guru. Do you see how different that is than what the Bible's displaying here? Wisdom is no guru hiding up in a mountain cave somewhere. Wisdom is down in the streets among the people crying out, Come to me, let me share with you. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that our God is not stingy. He is not hiding his resources up in some mountain cave somewhere. He is down among the people calling out. Let's talk about Wisdom's Auditorium. She is there in the midst of the busy streets and the business shops. She is there in the midst of the noise and the crowd. It's a very urban setting here. She's there in the marketplace. She's not hiding behind the church walls. She is out there where the people are. She's at the city gate, the place where business was conducted. She's at, she's at the place where, where court hearings took place there at the city gate. This was her auditorium. It's a beautiful picture that God is coming after His people. He wants to impart wisdom to us. He wants to share His gracious word with us. He's not hiding out in a mountain cave somewhere. And by the way, church, this is the way that we ought to be. This is, a, this is an example of the task of the church. Warren Wearsby said, The church's task is to proclaim the gospel message so everyone can hear, believe, and be saved. Like wisdom, we must herald the word in an uncompromising way. It's not enough for us to hide within the caves of our church buildings. There's been, in days past, this thing called the seeker-sensitive movement among churches. And the whole idea of the seeker-sensitive movement was, let's do what we do within our walls so well that they'll want to come and seek us. Unfortunately, that runs completely contrary to what the Bible teaches. And all that was put into making great worship services and thriving small groups and amazing children and youth ministries, all that was put into making the church a place that would be a beacon on a hill that would be the guru, that everybody would want to come to us when the call of the gospel was that we would be out among the people. The church was never meant to be a guru cave where people would come looking for wisdom. Yes, we do find wisdom in this place according to the Word of God. Yes, we do have much to offer to the world, but it's not for us to hide ourselves within our church walls waiting for them to come to us. Wisdom says, get out in the streets. Wisdom says, we have to go to where the people are. Who is her audience? Three different folks are described there as her audience. First of all, the simpletons. These are those who lack life experience. They're normally the young. They, they've just not had the chance yet to gain wisdom. It's not so much that they have rejected wisdom. They've just not had enough life experience yet to gain the necessary wisdom. That's the, the simpleton. But then he mentions there as well the scoffers. 
The scoffers are those who have had opportunity to gain wisdom, but they've rejected it. They have mocked the things of God. They have laughed at the things of God. And their attitude is, I don't need that because I already know better. Whereas the simpleton recognizes, I don't know enough. The scoffer thinks, I already know more than I need. And finally, there's the stooge. Now, when I was growing up, there was a show called The Three Stooges. And for some reason, The Three Stooges, as ridiculous as they were, things generally seemed to work out pretty good for them in the end. That's not the picture of what happens here in the book of Proverbs. The fool, the stooge, is one whose pathway leads to destruction. We talked about this last week, and we'll come back to it before we end again today. But this is who wisdom goes after. Wisdom goes out into the streets, this bold street preacher, and she is proclaiming the message of God's word, his glorious gospel, that there is hope for fools like us, that there is hope for sinful, rebellious people like us. She goes out proclaiming this message. And what is the message? Look at verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you and I will make my words known to you her message is one of repentance proverbs talks so much about the issue of rebuke and i want you to think about in this moment every person in this room how is it that you generally respond to rebuke to correction to someone bringing a correction, a reproof, a rebuke into your life? How do you generally respond? The book of Proverbs says that it's a wise person who receives well a rightful correction. When you're doing something wrong and somebody comes alongside you and says, hey, brother, hey, sister, let me, let me help you. Let me, let me help you come alongside some wisdom here. Let me bring some correction into your life. How do you respond to that? If your first response is, who do you think you are? If your first response is, why do you think you know any better than I know? If your first response is this prideful welling up, there's a great danger in that. Now, as Miss Jeannie said a few minutes ago, we don't always need to listen to the instruction that we're given. But if we're quick to reject in anger or in pride, there's a danger there that we need to be aware of. So the call of wisdom is to repent, to turn at rebuke, at correction, at reproof. And so what is the award if we do so? Notice what he says there. The award is both the Spirit and the Scriptures. He says, if you will turn, if you will walk in the pathways of repentance, behold, that that word says, pay attention, there's something great here that's getting ready to be said, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you and I will make my words known to you. These are here in the Old Testament. This is a a foreshadowing of the two great gifts that were going to be given as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That first of all, we would have the Holy Spirit to indwell us. That the Spirit of God would be poured out on us as we saw uh, several weeks ago when we looked at the day of Pentecost and Peter's great sermon in which 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. That there was a repentance that took place and the Holy Spirit was poured out in that day on those who were hearing. That it is God's gift of the Spirit that comes as a result 
of hearing and receiving the wisdom of God known as the gospel. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit makes the Word of God known to us. The Bible says of itself that apart from the Spirit of God, we cannot understand the Word of God. That's why I say regularly in these gatherings that your primary teacher is not me. It's not your Sunday school teacher. Children in this room, I want to say to you, your primary teacher is not even your parents. The primary teacher given to mankind is the Holy Spirit of God. Now we need all these other teachers as well. I pray that I can be helpful to you as I open up the Word of God to you. I pray that your Sunday school teachers will be helpful to you in helping you make application of that Word. And children in this room, God has given you your parents to teach you and to raise you to be wise and to walk in the ways of the Lord. But our primary teacher is the Spirit of God. And what does He teach us? The Word of God, which is His wisdom. And by the way, the Scriptures always point us in one direction. The Scriptures will always point you to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because of Him, it's talking about what God has done for us in the Gospel. Because of what God has done for us in the Gospel, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So as we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, 24 a few weeks ago, that Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. The wisdom of God that we're looking at in Proverbs will always, always, always point us to Jesus. He is the wisdom and power of God. So this bold street preacher that's calling us to Christ, calling us to the wisdom of God, and now we make a turn here once again, and we see in verse 24 a different kind of path described. We see the pathway of wickedness, which is ultimately a suicidal pathway. It grows dark here, but I need you to see this. You will not understand your need for the light of Christ until you see the darkness in which you dwell apart from Him. And that's what we're seeing here beginning in verse 24. She's calling out. Wisdom is calling out in the streets, these bold, this bold street preacher. But no one seems to be listening. She is calling out, showing the way of God, showing the wisdom of God, unveiling the Word of God. But no one seems to be listening in these verses, and then she begins to bring a rebuke about what that means. What does it mean that we reject the Word of God? What does it mean that we reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it mean when God has laid before us His wisdom? We didn't have to go searching after it in some guru's cave. It was out there for us. What does it mean when we reject the wisdom of God? First of all, it's like an unbearable storm. Verse 27. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. How many of you were awoken by the, the storm that took place this morning about 5.30 or 6 o'clock this morning, depending on where in the county you were? Yeah, I was about two minutes from walking out the door when the rain pour began. 
I'm like, man, could it not have just waited two minutes for me to get in my car? So I had to dig out the umbrella and get half drenched anyway. All that stuff happened. But that was a small storm in comparison with what's being talked about here. This is a hurricane. The picture here is a whirlwind, a hurricane, driving winds that bring destruction in their path, floodwaters that move over the ground with destructive force. This is thunder and lightning and whirlwind and flood. This is a picture of destruction. And what he's saying here is, if you persist in the ways of wickedness, you are drawing into your life an unbearable storm that will leave havoc in its wake. Have you ever seen on TV the pathway of a tornado? Have you seen those pictures of a two-by-four being driven into a telephone pole by the winds? It's pathways of destruction. He's saying if you continue to walk in the ways of wickedness, if you continue to reject the wisdom of God, you are beckoning into your life an unbearable, destructive storm. But not only that, wickedness is also an unsatisfying supper. You say, well, I've had some unsatisfying suppers. What's the big deal? Look at verse 31. Therefore, these who reject wisdom, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. If you were here last week, you'll remember we talked about these guys, these wicked guys who they dig a pit for others trying to entrap others, but they fall into their own pit. What a bunch of goobers, right? You dug a pit to try to trap somebody else, and then you fell into it yourself. That's a picture of wickedness. The same thing is being said here. They have their fill of their own devices. They have cooked up schemes that will not fill their bellies. Isn't it interesting how much fulfillment we tend to look for in wickedness? How we look to that adulterous relationship and we think that somehow that will fill up what's lacking in our marriage. We look to that get-rich-quick scheme. We think that that will somehow take care of the debt that we've accumulated. We look to that easy way out of our problems, whether it's telling that little white lie stealing from that department store, whatever it is, whatever the temptation that comes into our life, we think that somehow, somehow that's going to fill in the places where we're lacking. Somehow that's going to make up for what I don't have. And yet the Word of God says, they shall eat the fruit of their way. The Bible is very clear that we all will reap what we sow. We'll come back to that idea before we finish this morning. God has placed us in a cause and effect universe that he created. And he's saying here, the wicked feast on an unsatisfying supper. It's as if they've eaten, but they're still empty. There's no nourishment for their bodies. And they keep feasting on that, which will never satisfy and ultimately this is pictured in verse 32 as an unavoidable suicide look at verse 32 for the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them 
that word where it says the simple are killed by their turning away, it's constructed in such a way, it's really saying they kill themselves. They are committing suicide because they keep walking down these wicked paths, because they keep rejecting the wisdom of God, because they keep seeking to go their own way and do their own thing, because they keep thinking they know better. They keep walking down these insane paths. It's been said that insanity is continuing to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Again, God has placed us in a cause and effect world. We do reap what we sow. Farmers in this room, if you go out and you sow soybeans in the field, you don't come back in the fall expecting apple trees to have grown up in their place. If that happens, something went haywire. That's not the way that's supposed to work. And yet, we so often forget this in our own lives. We forget that in His grace, God placed us in a cause and effect world. That our actions bear consequences. Psalm 1 is one of the wisdom psalms. And it speaks about the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the wise and the, and the fool. And the end of that psalm winds up this way. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's death there. And Solomon here, the writer of Proverbs, is, is warning us, as one who Grant laid out so well a couple of weeks ago, that, that, that even Solomon himself didn't follow his own wisdom by the end of his life. He walked down the path of destruction, which should be instructive to us. If the wisest man that has lived apart from Jesus Christ, if Solomon fell into paths of wickedness and walked away from his own wisdom, that ought to be instructive to us, that we're not immune, that we don't know better. That we need to lean into the Lord lest we continue to walk in this wicked way. And so where does this leave us? Let me leave you with just a couple of quick thoughts as we finish up this morning. We wind up here in this place with the subsequent product of these two paths. Same place we were last week. If this sounds familiar, it's because Proverbs keeps hammering home these ideas for us that we would see clearly what we're faced with. Look at verse 32, first of all. In verse 32, you're seeing this reality, that wickedness ultimately produces disaster, destruction, and death. Now I want you to double underline that word ultimately, because here's what we see so often. We look at the lives of the wicked in our culture, those who have cheated their way to the top, those who have engaged in rampant immorality and seem to have no consequences whatsoever, we look at what seems to be the prosperity of the wicked and we say, well, that doesn't always work out that way, God. But that's where the word ultimately becomes so important. Don't miss this. Ultimately, the pathways of wickedness that the Word of God is warning us against Ultimately, those pathways lead to disaster, which results in destruction, which leads to death. The Bible is so clear. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. 
The due result of sin is death. The pathway of wickedness ultimately leads to a grave. It may look like prosperity between here and there, between the beginning of the path and the end of the path. It may look like rampant prosperity. It may look like, man, that's exactly what I want to do. You see your buddy who's prospering in his wickedness, and you think, man, that's exactly what I want to do because I want to get what he got. But you don't want to get what he's ultimately going to get, which is the judgment of God and his wrath. C.S. Lewis said, The man who will neither obey wisdom in others nor adventure for himself is fatal. This is a path of death. And the Bible's warning us about it. So, what's the alternative? Look at verse 33. In verse 33, he says, but whoever listens to me, that's the dividing line. Will you listen to what God is crying out in the streets or this morning crying out here in his church house? Will you listen to what the word of God is warning you about and beckoning you into? It's not just a warning. It's not just God saying, stay away from this, stay away from this, stay away from this. It's also God saying, come into this. Let me invite you and let me show you where real joy is to be found. Joy is not going to be found on the wicked way ultimately. There may be happiness for a season. There may be contentment for a moment. But if you want to have eternal joy and lasting contentment, then let me show you a different way. Wisdom ultimately produces calmness, courageousness, and Christ-likeness. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure. Listen to this verse, and I want to ask you as I read this. Is this not what your heart desires? I mean, listen to what's being said here. I'll read it for you. Listen to what's being said, and I want to ask you, is this not what your heart desires? At the very core of your being, whoever listens to me will dwell secure. How many of us us would be able to say, yeah, I want that kind of security. I want that kind of lasting peace. That's the sense of that word. I don't think any of us in this room would, would stand up and say, you know what? I really love the turmoil in my life. I want a life full of drama and mess. The Bible's saying you want to dwell secure. You want to have peace even in the midst of the storm of your life. Think about that hurricane for a moment. In the very middle of a hurricane is what's known as the, the eye of the hurricane. And there's a place there where there is serenity and peace. That's a picture of what God wants to bring into our lives. That even though everything around us may be in chaos, that we can be in perfect peace because we belong to Him. Because we have come to know His wisdom, which is greater than our circumstances. So if I were to ask you, do you want to dwell secure? Do you want to be at peace? I'm sure every one of us in this room would say, yeah, that's what I want. And we'll be at ease. We'll be at ease. That doesn't necessarily mean there, the sense is not, we'll have an easy life. That's never been promised to us in the scriptures. In fact, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That's how you can be at ease, even when things aren't easy. You see the difference? You can be at ease even when things aren't easy because you know Him. 
and because you know that he's overcome the world and whatever is coming against you, you can be at ease even when it's not easy. And I think all of us in this room would say, that's what I want. And you can be without dread of disaster. Notice he doesn't say without disaster. In this life, you will have trouble. Jesus said, if you come follow after me, there will be persecutions. There will be difficulties. The world will hate you because of me. Just like they said earlier, they hated wisdom. It wasn't just like take it or leave it. Well, I don't really know if I want to know. They hated the wisdom of God. That's what it means for us to be sinners, folks. It's not just that I said, no thanks, God. It's that I hated the wisdom of God. I so thought that I knew better, that my ways were better than His. That's what it means. But I think all of us would say, I don't want to live my life in dread of disaster. And that's what the wisdom of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. If you this morning would say from the bottom of your heart, from the very core of your being, man, I want to dwell in this kind of peace. Man, I want to be at ease even when things aren't easy. Even when there's disaster in my life, I don't want to live in constant dread or fear of that. If that's where you want to be, then let me tell you without any question this morning that is only found in jesus christ you're not going to find the the secret formula for that you're not going to read the perfect self-help book that's going to get you there or 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 take uh, that class that's going to get you there it's not going to be found in just working your way toward it little by little we're talking about this morning this place where diligence and delight come together, where holiness and happiness come together, that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And I have to tell you this morning, if you reject Him, there will only be disaster in your life, ultimately. You may prosper in the short term. You may reject the wisdom of God and find great prosperity in the short term. We're seeing it all over our culture right now. We are a culture of enormous prosperity. But where will it end? And will we find ourselves trusting in something that was fleeting? When the faithful voice of the bold street preacher who's come after us is saying, Come unto me, all you weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. It may not be easy, but you can be at ease. There may still be disaster, but you don't have to be in dread of it. Come and experience peace like you've never known. That's what the wisdom of God produces.